What a joy together with the body of Christ today and to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For believers, we gather every Sunday to celebrate this eternal truth. Christ is risen. Thank you so much. Some of you are catching on slowly but surely. Christ is risen indeed, and to that we rejoice with one another today. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn with me to the book of Romans. To the book of Romans. If you're visiting with us today, let me extend to you a welcome just as my brother Travis did. It is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books of the Bible, for we believe that God has finally and completely revealed himself to us through his written word. And if you and I want to know rightly who is God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, we must give ourselves to the very word of God. And so we preach through books of the Bible this morning. It's going to be just a slight bit different in that we're going to take a journey through the entirety of the book of Romans and look at how Paul uses resurrection in the book of Romans. And of course, today's Easter, and you have all prepared to stay the entirety of the day with us at worship, so it should be no problem. We'll be out by two or three this afternoon as we make this journey, okay? Paul and resurrection in the book of Romans. It's interesting to note as you look at the written word of God that the first written proof of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ does not appear in our gospel narratives. They appear in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul is one of, if not the earliest, uh, testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he chronicles this resurrection in his writings. Not only is Paul one of the earliest testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so the church has given herself to studying those texts of Scripture and Paul's writings concerning the resurrection. You'll also note that Paul was one of the early persecutors of the church. Paul himself, an antagonist against Christ. Paul himself, a testimony of Scripture itself, was one who did not believe in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul was one who spent a significant portion of his time seeking to stamp out this Christian ministry, this Christian word, this testimony of, of Christ. And yet this one who so despised the testimony of the Lord himself becomes one of the greatest evangelists in all of Christianity, declaring this eternal truth that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul, if you remember from the encounter in Acts, from the narrative in Acts, had an encounter himself with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and it was from that encounter that Paul, or as we knew him before Paul, saw terms from one who had persecuted the church and Christ to one who now believes in Christ. 
In each of Paul's letters, he weaves, with the exception of one, he weaves into these narratives this resurrection story. For as you will remember Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us that if it was not for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith would be in vain. I want us to note from the text of Scripture in the book of Romans this morning, four aspects of the resurrection that the Apostle Paul points us to in the context of the book of Romans. The first in Romans chapter 1, and here in Romans chapter 1 in the first six verses, Paul says the resurrection proves Jesus's divinity. The resurrection proves that Jesus is indeed who he says he was, God. Notice how Paul begins the narrative here in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now as we read these gospel narratives and the synoptic gospels, there is this sense at which Jesus conceals much of who he is throughout the writings of this gospel narrative. And as the story progresses, there will be certain encounters in which the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Jews at large understand what Jesus is communicating. So for example, in John chapter 5, they accuse him of blasphemy. And yet, Jesus himself along that journey will note from time to time, give indication from time to time exactly who he is, but the scripture tells us his time is not yet. There is this aspect of the concealing of the very nature of who Christ is as we journey along the gospels and even following Jesus's death. It's interesting as we reflect upon this weekend, the narrative of Jesus's death. Jesus is with his disciples for Passover. They're in an upper room on Thursday afternoon. They celebrate the Passover together. Jesus and his disciples walk from Mount Moriah over to the Mount of Olives and there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus wants to pray. Of course, Jesus has already foretold his disciples, even in that Passover meal, exactly what they are to anticipate, and yet they don't understand it. For when the Roman guards show up to arrest Jesus, there's a bit of a fight that takes place in the garden, is there not? They arrest Jesus. They hold him overnight. Thursday morning, Jesus stands trial before a number of different officials, ultimately being sacrificed You have to know that the end of the day, Friday and Saturday, were indeed very long hours for the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet early on that Sunday morning, 
The Bible records that a number of people went to the very tomb of Jesus and they found him not to be there. So what we might expect of the disciples. Perhaps we would expect that the disciples would gather back again, maybe in that same upper room that they had joined with one another on that Thursday afternoon, and, and maybe they would sing, sing hymns of, of thanks for Jesus' resurrection, but yet they still don't get it, do they? Remember from the Gospel of Luke at the very end, two of Jesus' disciples are on this road to, uh, to Aramaeus, and Jesus shows up in the middle of their conversation He knows what they're talking about because he is God. He doesn't have to hear their conversation to know. He shows up and just kind of inserts himself and is like, what are you guys talking about? Do the disciples recognize at that moment who Jesus is? They still don't get, even after resurrection, who Jesus is. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus takes these disciples, the ones who followed Jesus the closest on a journey. Luke chapter 24, the Bible records these words in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into, glory, in his, into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And notice verse 32 at the very end. The disciples are responding after they've had this encounter with Jesus. Their hearts have burned deep inside them. The Spirit of God has been at work in their lives. And notice what they said, while he opened to us the scriptures. And then notice again in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay until the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It was not until after Jesus' own resurrection that the disciples themselves clearly understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that has been promised from the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul here in the first part of Romans takes this revelation of God's resurrection and Paul says to us, the resurrection itself proves to you and me that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. Not only does the resurrection, as Paul used it here in the gospel near, or in the book of Romans, prove to us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one that he claimed to be. Notice as we journey along now to the fourth chapter, that here in Romans chapter four, Paul says the resurrection completes, or the resurrection brings about our salvation. 
The resurrection completes the salvation narrative, and this resurrection brings about salvation. Notice how he declares this here in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and then also again in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse number 23. But the words, it was counted to him, a reflection back to the narrative in Genesis concerning Abraham. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then notice how Paul uses this again in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? That is, what does the Word of God declare? The Word of God declares that the Word is is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul uses the resurrection in this text to show us that it's absolutely impossible for you and me to be made right with God apart from this completion of the gospel narrative and Jesus' resurrection. The gospel narrative would not be complete if only the story was one of a God who came from heaven to earth in an incarnation. While that might be an interesting story, while it might be neat, it would ultimately not serve the purpose of bringing about redemption. If the story of Jesus' life was one of incarnation and one of atonement, substitution, while that would be glorious and while our minds can't rightly grasp exactly what takes place in that vicarious atonement and that substitutionary death, while we might marvel at that reality, while our hearts might flow with great appreciation for the sacrifice that this one Jesus would have made on our behalf if this gospel narrative were to end there. The narrative of salvation would not be complete. Notice in Romans chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 25 again how Paul uses this resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to show us that the resurrection completes 
this gospel narrative or this resurrection brings about our salvation. It was counted to him, we're not written for his sake, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, the way in which you are and I are made right with the Lord is by belief and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as Paul notes here, his resurrection. For it's in his resurrection that our hope is made complete. It's in his resurrection that Jesus completely reveals who he is. As Paul says here in Romans chapter four, it's in that resurrection that we are justified. Justification is a legal term. Paul in this text calls us into the courtroom of God the Father. By the way, notice what he says concerning this narrative here in Romans chapter four and again in Romans chapter 10. And it's not only here in Romans chapter four and Romans chapter 10 where this occurs, This is an understanding that more than likely would have been a phrase or several phrases that would have been included in early Christian reflections upon the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice who Paul says is the primary player in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father. What we notice about this narrative of the death, burial, and resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is it is a complete work of the triune God. Friends, the entirety of the Godhead was at work in bringing about your salvation and my salvation. And here, Paul calls us into the courtroom. He reminds us that apart from Belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a legal declaration that has been made against your life and against my life. And that legal declaration, friend, is you are guilty. For the Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ today, friend, not one of us can be made right with God. But Jesus, in his resurrection, completes that process of salvation, and in doing so, enables us to no longer stand in God's courtroom and be be declared guilty, but he enables us to be able to stand in God's courtroom and be declared guilty righteous, be justified, be declared innocent. And how do we step into God's courtroom and be declared innocent? Paul fleshes out in practical terms that which he communicates here in theological terms in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 10. He gives us the practical outworking of this justification. How am I justified? How am I declared innocent? How am I saved? How am I redeemed? How is my life changed? How am I placed in a right relationship 
with the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul answers that question for us in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Reaching back to Romans chapter 1, Paul is saying, Jesus is God. If you confess today that Jesus is God, if you believe him as Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As we think about this resurrection of Christ, maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, but I just really don't think this is a true testimony. Would you hear and be convinced perhaps today by the testimony of the Word of God, the witnesses that Scripture records concerning this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ? I shared with you at the very beginning of this, of this sermon that Paul was one who himself persecuted Christianity. Paul stood as, as one who sought to kill people who believed in this gospel, gospel narrative. And yet when Paul encounters the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Paul's life is changed. Paul is converted. Paul becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. His testimony stands as one example for you and me. Paul's narrative stands as a testimony of one who did not believe, but now is one who does believe. But if you don't believe the Apostle Paul, then maybe believe the writings of the narrative of the Gospels. The Gospels themselves are written after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chronicles, some who themselves walked with Jesus and written, for example, by Luke, one who did not walk exactly with Jesus but heard this Christian testimony through the preaching of that of other witnesses. But it wasn't just Jesus' disciples, those 12 men that he called himself that would follow him for at least three years who were eyewitnesses to this testimony. The Bible says that there were a number of women themselves who ran to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning and saw the empty tomb. We have the eyewitness testimony of, of two Marys, at least. But if you don't believe the testimony of an antagonist against Christianity who was converted through the message of Christianity, and if you don't believe the disciples who had given them their, their lives for Christ... Why would these disciples continue to give themselves to a narrative that was completely and totally false? Not only give their lives in terms of their lives as they lived it, but why would some of them ultimately make the greatest sacrifice of being a martyr for following a story that was not true? But if you still refuse to believe in the testimony of the disciples who would ultimately take this gospel narrative and literally give their lives for it, might you also be compelled by the testimony of the text of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as Paul reminds us that this gospel narrative, this story of Jesus' resurrection, 
was witnessed before 500 eyewitnesses. The testimony of Scripture is complete in its revelation that Jesus has died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And friends, this Scripture narrative calls you you and me to believe and hope in this one who has given his life for you. Have you believed in Christ today? Have you trusted in this gospel narrative? Like the Apostle Paul, has this gospel narrative changed your life? Paul uses this narrative of resurrection in the book of Romans to prove for you and me Jesus' deity. He uses this gospel narrative to prove for you and me that that Jesus' resurrection completes our salvation. But notice what Paul does in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul uses Christ's resurrection as a guarantee of our resurrection. Jesus becomes a type for you and me. Jesus becomes an example for you and me, what we too can experience by faith and hope and trust in the person of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the narrative of Jesus' resurrection is not the last narrative of resurrection that Christianity knows. Notice how Paul paints this picture for us in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For... If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, absolutely, assuredly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This, my friends, is the eternal hope of the gospel narrative. That we, unless the Lord Jesus Christ tarries, will one day follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before us. The life as you and I know it at this moment will come to an end. But as Jesus in that narrative in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 reminds the two sisters of, of Lazarus, The ultimate expression of life is not what you and I experience at this very moment. The ultimate reality in life is found in hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he declares in the Gospel of John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, 
Though he die, yet shall he live. This is our hope. As Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in chapters in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he wrote to a group of people who were very anxious concerning the end time. They were concerned. They had heard the gospel message. They had heard of the story of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they had also been taught that Jesus was coming again. But there was a problem. They were concerned, for they had loved ones who had died before Jesus had returned. And they're wondering, is this gospel narrative really true? Have I believed incorrectly in a gospel narrative? What does Paul seek to do in First and Second Thessalonians? He seeks to sow a measure of hope in their hearts and lives by saying to them, in the same way in which the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so too shall we, those who have placed their faith and their trust and their hope and the Lord Jesus Christ be resurrected when Jesus Christ comes again. This is the hope of the believer. This life as you and I know it is not the last testimony of my life or of your life, regardless of whether we have believed in the person of the Lord Jesus. For the Bible tells us that there is an eternity that is expressed in two realities. An eternity that is expressed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is for people who have trusted in Jesus, for those who have believed in him and have confessed him as Lord. And there's another reality. That's a reality that the Bible calls hell. Eternal separation, damnation, condemnation, and judgment against those who have rejected this gospel narrative. Because of Jesus' resurrection, though, friend, you can join with the millions who've gone before us and hoping and trusting that as Jesus was resurrected, so too shall you be resurrected by faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus. Would you believe in Jesus today? Would you trust in his resurrection today? Christ's resurrection guarantees for you and me that we shall join him in his resurrection, in our resurrection. But notice how Paul uses resurrection lastly here in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 14. Not only does resurrection prove Jesus' divinity, not only does Paul show us that resurrection completes the process of salvation or brings about the process of salvation, Not only does Paul show us that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection, but here in Romans chapter 14 and also again in Romans chapter 8, Paul shows us that Christ's resurrection guarantees our sanctification. 
Christ's resurrection guarantees our sanctification. What do I mean by sanctification? Christ's resurrection guarantees that you and I can walk rightly with God. We can increase in Christ-likeness. We can increase in godliness. Let me begin first in Romans chapter 8, then we'll come back to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 8, let's begin in verse 11. Romans chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 11 and then drop down to verse 34. Romans chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now, what you don't see in the English, you see clearly in the context of the Greek New Testament, this is a conditional sentence. There are three types of conditional sentences. Paul places this in the third class conditional sentence, and he is arguing uh, from a standpoint that affirms or demands or expects an affirmative answer. So when Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what he's actually saying is, this spirit of God indeed dwells in you. If you've trusted in Christ, you have the spirit of the living God living inside of you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, he who raised Jesus from the dead, notice what he says, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You might remember that Paul has just communicated the severity of sin in chapter 7. He's shown us how sin's grip is so tight on our, on our hearts and our lives. Now we must reject that sin and we must run to Christ. So Romans chapter 8 is a beautiful depiction of life lived in relationship to the Spirit of God. And here Paul is reminding the believers in Rome as he seeks to unite them around the gospel that they can increase in their godliness, they can increase in their Christ-likeness, not because of who they are, that they can overcome sin, not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. See, friends, we live in this moment of experiencing the kingdom of God, but yet not fully experiencing the kingdom of God. We live in this moment in which our lives have been redeemed, but our lives have not been fully redeemed. We live in this moment in which we have trusted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, we still have an appetite and a desire for sin. And Paul is reminding the church at Rome that the way in which our appetite for sin is decreased and our appetite for Christ is increased is as we walk by the Spirit. God in His graciousness, Jesus in His promise has said to those who by faith believe in Him that He will send to us a paraclete. He will send to us a helper. Who is that helper? Who is that comforter? 
the Spirit of God. This is good news for us. We must live our lives with the confession that we are indeed sinners, even those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. We must live with that reality. But we also must live with this eternal hope that I can indeed in a very real way become more like Jesus today as I submit my life to His Word and to His Spirit on a regular basis. And what secures that for you and me, friends? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear these words again from Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then taking that most important theological concept, notice how Paul practically works that out in our hearts and lives, beginning in verse 34 of chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus our Lord. Friends, what brings about this sense of certainty? What brings about this sense of hope in the hearts and lives of people who believe? A belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no excuse, those of us who by faith have trusted in him. We have no excuse for why we are not growing in godliness and Christ-likeness other than the sin of our own choosing. Jesus has done everything necessary for you and for me to be as close to him as we desire. And notice what he does in chapter 14. As he reflects on this process of sanctification here in chapter 14, one of the evidences that sanctification has indeed taken root in our hearts and lives is by the way in which we express love for the body of Christ. We have seen throughout the text of Romans already, we're in Romans chapter 11, walking through the book of Romans together, we have seen that there is some division indeed in this body. 
there are some differences of opinion in this body, as there is in every church, right? And here in Romans chapter 14, Paul is concerned at the way in which the people of God are casting judgment on each other for the way in which some of them practice dietary laws and in the way in which some of them practice uh, uh, participation in, in festivals. And Paul is concerned that this tertiary issues, these tertiary issues might be sowing division in the body of Christ, and Paul is writing to compel this body of Christ to walk in unity with one another. And notice what he does here in Romans chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. He's just made this great plea in regard to this, and he writes in verse 8, for if we, and notice the pronoun, we, we collectively, if the body of Christ at Rome, if the body of Christ at Woodlawn, for we live, we live together to the Lord. And if we die, we die together to the Lord. So then, whether we live together or whether we die together, we are the Lord's. What's Paul saying? The greatest thing for you and me to remember concerning one another is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember Jesus' statement in John, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples. Right? We see this practically worked out in the context of marriage. Right? We get married and we think, man, this is going to be the most joyful expression of, in all of life. This is going to be wonderful. And it works that way for one day. And then for the other 55 years, it works rightly the opposite, right? I'm joking. What do we have to learn to do in the context of marriage? We get the tension from time to time. But I don't have the right to go home to my wife one day and say, you know what, you have made me so mad for the last three days, I'm out of here, see you. No, Christ sets the paradigm for you and me and what it means to love one another. And Paul is begging, pleading with the church in Rome that the way in which we communicate our sanctification is the way in which we walk in unity with one another, the way in which we view one another. We are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 9, for to this end... To what end? To this end that you and I might understand whether we live or whether we die, whether you eat meat or I don't eat meat, whether you participate in some festival or you don't participate in some festival, whether you wear your hair long down by your knees or I wear mine short up by my ears. The greatest reality is for you and me to live our lives with an understanding that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. John Calvin said, 
Christ lives, not so much for his joy, but for our joy. See, friends, Paul reminds us in the context of Romans that Jesus' resurrection has incredible implications for two groups of people. For those who do not believe and for those who do believe. For those who do not believe, Paul says that that resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. That that resurrection calls each of us to faith and hope and trust in Christ. And so in the same way that the Apostle Paul pleaded with those in Rome to trust in Christ, so too I plead with you this morning, friend, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Would you please trust in Jesus today? And then for those of us who believe, the incredible implications of this resurrection of Christ for our hearts and our lives as it continually reminds us that Jesus is who he says he is, thus I can indeed trust the testimony of Scripture and live my life by it, and I can grow to be more like Christ. For those of us who have trusted, it's easy for us to understand how this gospel narrative of Jesus' resurrection impacts and affects those who do not believe. And sometimes less for us to understand how that resurrection continues to affect and impact our lives as believers on a daily basis. How close are you today to, to Christ, friend? In what way has Christ's resurrection changed who you are? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that Jesus indeed has been raised from the dead. And it's to that hope, to that reality that we hope and we believe and we confess that Jesus is Lord. So Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrate that eternal truth, I pray, Lord, today for that one who might be here that does not believe, that indeed, God, you, by your Spirit and through your Word today, might convict them of their need to trust in Christ. And for those of us who have believed, that, Lord, you would increase our affections for you, our desire to be more like you as we reflect on your resurrection. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning with your head bowed and your eyes closed and just reflect on this resurrection narrative from the book of Romans? If you're a believer today, would you rejoice where you're seated this morning in giving thanks to God that he has raised Jesus from the dead? 
Did you thank him for the power that he has displayed in that resurrection testimony? And as you thank him for that resurrection, would you ask him to increase your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus? Would you ask him to increase your godliness, your Christ-likeness? Can you look back over the course of this last year and see measurable ways in which you have increased in being more like Christ as you live your life every day in light of this reality of the resurrection of Jesus? In just a few moments, friends, we're going to stand and respond to this resurrection testimony by singing of our faith and our hope in that resurrection. And as we sing of our hope of that resurrection, if you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, I'll be standing down front. I'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come down and have a conversation with me. Please turn to someone seated next to you in the context of this building. There are plenty of people in this building who love Christ and will be glad to share with you how you too can trust in Christ. Maybe you'd just like for me to pray with you that indeed you might grow in Christ's likeness as you reflect on Jesus' resurrection. As we sing, I would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express an interest in your being a part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?